Long COVID is really not new. It's virtually indistinguishable from the condition long known in the medical lexicon as post-infectious syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, abbreviated MECFS. Although some have recognized and studied their similarities, it seems no one has made the simplifying observation that they are essentially the same condition. Or more accurately, acute COVID-19 triggers MECFS in the same way many other infectious agents trigger the condition. This hypothesis has major policy, research, and patient care best practices implications. It's our most direct path forward to reset society's goals, strategies, and expectations for true progress against this public health catastrophe. That was Stephen Phillips, Global Virus Network board member and vice president for science and strategy at the COVID Collaboration, and Michelle Williams, the former dean of and the Joan and Julius Jacobson Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. They were reading from their recent first opinion essay on the need to rethink long COVID. After a quick break, I'll bring you our conversation about why long COVID is just a new name for an old disease. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, know your enrollment dates. Employer plans typically select a time period in the fall for employees to choose their coverage. Enrollment for Medicare eligible participants runs from October 15th through December 7th. Second, Take time to understand the costs of each plan by comparing how much you pay each month, as well as deductibles, copays, and prescription drug coverage. For more tips, visit uhcopenenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stet's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Stephen and Michelle. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Thank you, Tori. You know, to get right into this, I'd love if you could give me a brief explanation of your argument that long COVID is not something entirely new. What's the sort of basic gist there? Well, it's really the introduction of a new paradigm for all of society to think about making progress in long COVID. The old paradigms are twofold. One is the biomedical paradigm, and the second is the patient-centric paradigm. Uh, The patient-centric paradigm about three and a half years ago brought the recognition of the whole illness and the syndrome of long COVID to bear. And the patient-centric paradigm features the patient as self-empowered, Uh, self-diagnostic and self-determinant of the outcome of success. And uh, the biomedical paradigm has been long established and is very conventional in its principles and tools. And it 
seeks to identify the etiology, in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes uh, COVID, and link it to mechanism, which is called pathogenesis in uh, medical terminology, and to effect, uh, that is, uh, symptoms that are being experienced by the long COVID uh, patient. So both of these paradigms uh, have good qualities, but also lack explanatory uh, power in explaining what we're now witnessing and what we have seen over the last three and a half years. So Michelle and I have come up with basically a new paradigm with says that uh, uh, long COVID is really an old disease. And the more you do deep dives into the history of uh, chronic fatigue syndromes and post-infectious fatigue syndromes, the more you realize that not only are there similarities, but the level of congruence between the two is uh, strikingly high. So, Tori, let me just add that the reason Stephen and I were motivated to come up with this third paradigm was largely because we were recognizing that those who fall squarely in the patient-centered paradigm and those falling squarely in the medical research paradigm were talking past each other in, in ways that were only frustrating each of these communities. And so our, our motivation and our effort is to break the logjam that the vitriolic commentaries that were going across the transom, to break into that and to try to provide a framework whereby people would uh, think about um, long COVID in a different way, in a way that would be more productive in moving forward in meeting the needs of both communities. And, you know, certainly your piece has garnered a great deal of attention. It was received a huge number of views on STAT's website, which was great to see. What has the response been like for the two of you? Before I uh, enumerate some of the responses, just to back Michelle's viewpoint, that it's, it's difficult to overstate the level of finger pointing and friction especially in the media, but in professional associations and in uh, academic writing as well. And then in terms of the reactions we've had, generally highly favorable, uh, surprisingly somewhat, especially from the academic community. And some have said, oh, my God, uh, you finally awakened us to something that was in front of our face. And thank you so much. And in fairness, though, there have been uh, some that have pushed back and said, uh, well, you know, this is not going to be the cure. It's no panacea because uh, MECFS has been around for a long time, but uh, there's been precious little accomplished in understanding patient care uh, in that as well. Some of the comments we've received has been a recognition that this is um, a, a challenge on both sides and a sense of at least someone is listening to us and someone shares our point of view that there are immediate needs and concerns of the millions of Americans who are, you know, experiencing uh, long COVID. 
And you know, one thing that stands out to me about this is that ME-CFS has itself been a, a very controversial diagnosis for quite some time. And so, you know, given that history, the argument that the way to help long COVID is to think about it as more like ME-CFS, um, is that something that people in, say, the, the chronic illness community have responded to? Is that something that you've thought about a bit? Well, first of all, I think it's useful for all of us to look back on the history of ME-CFS and especially uh, the level of scientific and policy attention it has received. And frankly, even in the long COVID advocacy community, I'm not sure all that much hindsight has been directed at ME-CFS. If you look at ME-CFS, it uh, really features an incredibly comprehensive Institute of Medicine 2015 report. And then there's been a more recent analysis of something like over 2,000 articles on ME-CFS that looks at uh, both the diagnostic criteria and then the treatment options. So I, I think that if you go back to some of these primary sources, uh, much can be gleaned that's off the shelf, that is readily applicable in terms of current policy, practice, and even research. So I think that's the place to look. And I think just to uh, amplify, uh, I think in our view, long COVID is MECFS. Perhaps it can be retitled MECFSLC. But uh, when, when, when properly defined, and it needs a clinical case definition, when properly defined, I think not only are they synonymous, they are, I think, in every way alike, which means... Uh, decades of intensive evaluation, clinical and research, can be readily applied to the benefit of patients today. I want to put an accent on that point. Those 2,000 or more papers that Stephen just referred to were accumulated over at least two decades. And I know it is challenging and maybe dispiriting for people suffering from long COVID to fully integrate the concept that research takes time because it's, the, it's understanding the natural course of a condition and then having multiple designs over a period of time in many different populations before you get to the level of the quality of information that an institute of medicine, for example, would study and develop guidance. That does not bring comfort to people suffering uh, now. So our argument is if we could leverage the knowledge of MECFS, we might accelerate our progress to coming up with guidance for patient care and policies. Yeah, and actually, Michelle, I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. Can you maybe just to sort of demonstrate the length of time that you're saying it took for MECFS to be taken really seriously, could you maybe compare the what it was like for a patient to have MECFS, say, 15, 20 years ago with what a long COVID patient might be experiencing now? Wow, that's really tough because I, you know, when I started in my career in epidemiology, I heard lots about people suffering from something 
that was called chronic disease syndrome, or Stephen, you might remember another name was Epstein-Barr virus uh, disease. And Epstein-Barr virus got tacked on to this list, long laundry list of symptoms, because some cross-sectional observational studies associated Epstein-Barr viral antibody test and viral load with some of the symptoms. And it took years and years of additional follow-up studies in many different populations to start to put these together and understand that Epstein-Barr virus was um, one factor that was associated with the list of symptoms, neither necessary nor sufficient to explain the symptoms. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, um, a natural process in clinical research to do these kinds of descriptive studies and repeat them over time so the body of evidence then brings forward information that one can ascribe causation. You know, if, if you are very, very pointed in defining diagnostic criteria, uh, what Michelle was alluding to, post-infectious syndrome and ME-CFS, they, they both share uh, commonality with long COVID. So that if you uh, look at infectious disease syndrome, such as Epstein-Barr virus, mononucleosis, uh, chronic Lyme disease, a whole host of infectious agents, not only viral, but bacterial and uh, more exotic pathogens. Uh, they have a fatigue syndrome that has defied medical science in terms of understanding or treatment. And then uh, I think one commonality all the way from the 19th century to now has been the taboo. It has been the opprobrium. It's been the stigma that the patients have faced needlessly when they come forward with subjective symptoms that cannot be corroborated by the conventional medical diagnostic criteria of the time. They've been, by and large, shunned, ostracized, and so on. And that, if you look at how similar to identical these syndromes are, and how, in fact, non-traditional biomedical paradigm exists and serves these patients well, I think we would be on our way to treating current long COVID much more effectively and would make the patients that are suffering incredibly and as, as well as having functional impairment, uh, inability to work, disrupting their social life, et cetera, we could make that all significantly better right now by entering this new paradigm. And it occurs to me, too, that, you know, just the power dynamics, right, between patients versus physicians and researchers is such a huge part of this, particularly when it comes to gender, because my understanding is that, you know, most of these uh, post-illness syndromes are, are more likely to happen in women. Is that correct? Well, that's a really important question. And here I'm going to wear my epidemiologist hat for a moment and say it may or may not be correct that there is a higher burden in women. It might just be that women are um, reporting the symptoms and are engaging in the healthcare system more than their male counterparts. 
just to address the power dynamic, which is absolutely culturally, socially, and economically important in understanding where we are as a society. So currently, long COVID is in the biomedical paradigm called a diagnosis of exclusion. So that means that a patient presenting themselves to any clinician, any practitioner, would not be labeled as having long COVID. Uh, the, the proper way to work up such a patient would be to take their symptom absolutely seriously and to then do the right organ-specific multi-specialist workup. And it's only when that workup uh, that employs conventional biomedical diagnostic tools is negative, then the patient is allowed to be call themselves having long COVID. And that's where the power dynamic really shifts and strongly in favor of the biomedical paradigm. But the, the next step, if you take uh, our um, MECFS paradigm seriously, the next step would be for the patient to go into a well-known treatment channel that has different specialists. They have rehabilitation specialists, occupational specialists, people with psychosocial skills. Uh, there, are, uh, there, there are a host of avenues that the Institute of Medicine study and subsequently the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has forwarded about what is the right workup and the right channel for patients that truly have long COVID after uh, any rare disease or uh, other uh, uh, common illness has been ruled out. Uh, I think there are much more productive pathways that would incite far less polarization among treatment professionals and the patient population. What Stephen is, um, is getting at is, is where I think we may be heading with the new funding that Congress has um, now brought forward to create centers of excellence for patient care with long COVID. So that if we could develop a framework where these specialists are working together in a team medical um, approach and there are lessons being learned as the service are delivery, delivered and then being transferred to other care providers, we would have a testing and learning model that meets the needs in a more timely way for patients suffering from long COVID. And can you talk a little bit about the lessons that you hope can be learned at these centers? What are some of the specific questions uh, that they'll be asking? That, or if you could make them, what questions would you like them to ask? Before we even get to questions, I would hope that we could level the dialogue by rebuilding trust between the patients, the population, the medical community, and the research community. I think we also have to recognize that scientific literacy takes time and effort on both sides. And the guidance we currently offer 
uh, to Americans about how to avoid long COVID is to not get COVID in the first place is not particularly helpful. It's, it's not information and message I could take home to my parents or to my students. So I think we have to find ways to build trust and to, and to do that, we have to better communicate what we know and what we don't know uh, to our patients and our communities. Steve, do you have any follow-up there? Yeah. Um, once again, I find myself in total agreement with Michelle, <laughs> which is which is not surprising. You two should the, write together or something. <laughs> the I think we are, and we're going to continue. <laughs> by the way, thank you. Uh, the uh, I think now that we've talked about the what, I think the how is going to be very important, and. Uh, we noticed with uh, great enthusiasm that uh, President Biden announced the formation of the Office of Long COVID Research and Practice about three months ago or so. I think both Michelle and I have our hearts in doing this in a way that will reconcile the traditionally disparate interests of the COVID ecosystem. And, and they are vast. What are the sort of competing interests there? How would you sort of sketch those out? Part of the, the research paradigm is to um, work out the mechanisms, understand the mechanistic underpinnings of the relationships one will see between exposure and outcome. It might be that we don't have to, or we don't need to work out all the mechanisms before we can start to really hone in on ways to provide stronger, more timely protocols for patient care. That's a very powerful um, distinction between the two paradigms. And I think it's one where um, neither side's wrong nor right, but I think one has to understand the scientific process that would bring about the evidence needed for making solid guidelines for clinical care. And the uh, landscaping of the interested parties in the COVID ecosystem is quite complex, ever-shifting, fascinating, but all important to recognize. Among them are first and foremost patients, and another is Many of the patients are extremely well-organized and have formed advocacy groups, much in the HIV-AIDS uh, era uh, template. And then there are the traditional biomedical practitioners. And then there are the non-traditional practitioners, sometimes seeing long COVID patients out of default because they're not getting remedies or satisfaction or facing the stigma from the conventional biomedical sphere. And then there are the all-important researchers who are the beneficiaries of government largesse. Uh, I know Michelle and I have thought about this intensively, but what I think we would like to see is under the federal umbrella now of the Office of Long COVID under HHS, there's every opportunity to have a very aggressive campaign to bring these interests together to bring them together in the way that policy and practice is formulated. And I would say doing that and managing expectations, I would say is about the top rung 
objective of this whole enterprise. And if, if the government can't pull it off, I think we're pretty convinced that no one else can either. So I think this is a huge charge and a very important one. And I'm not sure, frankly, right now that the HHS office is fully cognizant of the huge challenge uh, that lies ahead of them. As you sort of alluded to there, Stephen, there are some questionable healthcare providers within this space, I think. And, you know, is there any concern that if you try to move more long COVID patients into the sort of pre-existing MECFS space, does that worry you at all in terms of people maybe getting advice that is not scientifically sound? Uh, the you have to realize you're talking to a non-conventional clinician. Good. <laughs> so, 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 so my my quick answer is uh, the the most important thing in treating long COVID effectively is symptom relief and patient satisfaction. What you really want is a patient on their own terms to improve in their function. Uh, and that means for their families, for their communities, for their employers, et cetera. This uh, brings us to the question of whether long COVID is real or not, in quotes. And Michelle and I have discussed this at length, and I think we have come to the conclusion that it's important to recognize that it is, in fact, real, and even challenging that is a false dichotomy. And so your question of do non-traditional practitioners have a role in this? And the answer would be absolutely. And by non-traditional uh, practitioners, we would mean uh, physiotherapists, nutritionists, uh, sleep uh, physicians or sleep uh, therapists, uh, a whole host, a whole cadre of non-traditional practitioners, I think, could be brought to bear and already are being brought to bear, but largely out of frustration of the community. It doesn't need to be out of frustration. They could be frontline. Once, once a proper diagnosis is made, these could be frontline treatment agents. And, and let me add, though, that uh, every now and then there are uh, charlatans, uh, people that sell snake oil, that probably get into the mix, and we're not talking about them. And and so far, so far, frankly, they have not, to our knowledge, played a major role in addressing the long COVID uh, problem. But Tori, your question, I, I agree with Steve 100 um, percent. When we talk about non-traditional care providers, those were the classes of care providers we were thinking about. But to the more extreme response to your question, we do have to remind our audience that misinformation and disinformation is not uncommon these days. And so, you know, I think we have to listen to your question and respond to the fact that some patients will receive misinformation, disinformation, and they would be best protected from charlatans to check in with their primary care providers and to get second opinions um, as a first line of defense against harming themselves because of the advice of charlatans. And certainly to kind of echo your point that people turn to charlatans out of desperation, right? Because 
of a lack of options. And so, you know, of, of course, the hope is that um, this new paradigm that you two suggest would be able to get people to, um, you know, receive better respectful treatment early on rather than turning somewhere um, where they might not. Um uh, that does then kind of bring up a question for me, which is, you know, there is still not perhaps as much productive research as we might have hoped so far on long COVID, but there is certainly still financial backing, as you've said, with these new centers for excellence, the office for long COVID. You know, do you think that there's a real chance that now that long COVID has become kind of even more of a of an official term um, to get people to sort of apply this paradigm that you suggest here? Well, I think key question and a key challenge facing the new HHS Office of Long COVID Policy and Research. The three and a half year history of long COVID research has been pretty unambiguously falling, fallen way short of expectations. You have to ask the question, why has research been so unproductive over three and a half years and how could it be more productive. And I think this is a subject perhaps for uh, further examination. My quick feeling, having looked at the research fairly closely, is that we need to shift our direction to a new paradigm, the one that we're discussing, away from the old paradigm. The biomedical paradigm sought to look and connect cause and effect. The cause was SARS-CoV-2. The effect was a range of 200 symptoms. They have looked very hard, both in terms of bench research into mechanism and also epidemiology, largely retrospective epidemiology, trying to figure out how to connect cause and effect. And frankly, it's been singularly unproductive. And most of the conventional researchers are using a fairly standard response of, well, let's do more research and let's do better research. What they're not saying is let's do different research. And different research, what would that constitute in the new paradigm that uh, encompasses uh, long COVID as uh, MECFS? And that would be symptom management, first and foremost. The other would be how do you provide comprehensive care? That's a health services research question. It's it's also a scaling question, which as Michelle alluded to, a few tertiary care centers nationally that now are going to pilot various comprehensive programs, but with up to 30 million people being afflicted, a few tertiary care centers is not gonna be enough. There needs to be health services research on how to scale the right type of healthcare. So the issue is not whether research is good or bad. I think the issue is how to make research effective within the new paradigm. And I would even add, how can we be sure that the funds to support the research are equitably distributed across the very deep science mechanistic research that's needed, but also the health services research that's needed. And historically, the health services research thread throughput has not been well supported. And this is a perfect example. All right. Final question. And Michelle, I want to start with you for this. What would you say to someone coping with long COVID right now? I would say, first and foremost, 
be sure to visit your primary care provider and to not let um, the stigma that is building up around um, non-COVID keep you from being completely transparent in the symptoms that you are experiencing. I would also say I recognize that the patient with long COVID is feeling disempowered right now. And I would argue that we have to do something about that. And we have to do something about that by working to bring down the stigma that uh, patients are feeling and recognizing that we have to rebuild the trust that's been defrayed um, between the healthcare research and patient communities. And then the next thing I would say is um, make your voices heard. Um, you know, um, there are advocacy groups that are really like um, we saw in the HIV AIDS um, dawn of that um, epidemic pandemic coming together and really promoting change in how we go about our research and patient care. So lean in and make use of advocacy groups that are uh, in and around your communities. Stephen Phillips and Michelle Williams, thank you both so much for joining me today. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. Listeners, I want to hear from you. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show and what topics the podcasting column should take on. Please email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And, you know, while you're at it, why don't you leave us a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Mm-hmm.